Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Today, I am joined by Sasha Dichter. He is the co-founder of 60 Decibels, the social enterprise on a mission to sort out how we collect really important social impact data from customers and consumers around the world. Their approach doesn't require high tech or for people to be on the internet. And therefore, Sasha and his team can actually hear what people really think, even in some of the least connected emerging markets. Prior to co-founding 60 Decibels, Sasha worked for 12 years at Acumen, the pioneer in patient capital investment, most recently as their chief innovation officer. And his CV includes working for organisations such as GE Money, IBM, and Booz Allen. So Sasha, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Ah, great to have you. Um, my first question today, really just to kind of ground us in what we're going to talk about, what do surveys mean to social impact and how can businesses use them? It's a great question. It's a great place to start. I mean, it's interesting because I would say in the more kind of mainstream world of impact investing, social enterprise, surveying, or you know, we just like to think about talking to the end customers has not been the typical practice. Whereas, of course, in kind of more mainstream business, you wouldn't imagine walking a step in your business without having a really direct line to your end customer and really understanding who they were, what their needs were, and making sure that you could meet them. And so what we've been doing at 60 Decibels from the outset is trying to make it as easy as possible to listen to the people who matter most, the customers and beneficiaries of socially oriented businesses. And we have found that by speaking to them through surveys, and we do remote surveys, mostly voice surveys with an infrastructure we've built in 35 countries, uh, mostly across the developing as well as the developed world. We want to make it easy for a socially oriented business to understand what the lived experience is of their customers. And so, you know, to us, you know, I don't think survey is a particularly sexy word, but if you think about just how do I open a channel of communication with the people who I'm trying to serve, it seems obvious that you'd want that channel to be as open as possible. And what we have been trying to do is make it easy not only to speak to and listen to these customers, whoever they are, wherever they are all over the world, but specifically to understand their experience of social impact. And we have found that gathering that bottom-up raw data can really ground a business in terms of how to serve those customers better, but also really to quantify whether or not they're, in fact, achieving their mission. So much of social impact measurement has been made kind of an academic pursuit and has been made kind of about frameworks and structures um, and definitions. And really, to us, what we're trying to do most of all is to really simplify that conversation and grounded first and foremost in, let me help you understand what your customer's day-to-day life is like. Let me help you understand what this product or service that you're delivering is doing to help improve that. And then let me help you understand to the extent to which you're not achieving that social impact that you'd hope to achieve, what your customers are telling you needs to change so that you could be more relevant to their lives. So in a way, you know, I think of the conversation that we're trying to start as one that can add value to those customers, add value to those businesses, and overall, you know, more broadly as a sector, really help ground us in the bottoms-up approach to thinking about social impact. And Sasha, we're talking amidst the COVID-19 
global pandemic. Why during this COVID crisis are social impact surveys especially important? Well, it's it's been a fascinating few months. I mean, obviously we are all struggling and we are all adjusting and you know millions and millions of people have been affected by this and and many too many people have died and the question we all collectively need to ask as this continues to be live is how do we respond wherever we're sitting if we are a business if we are a government if we are a policymaker if we are not for profit when do we open reopen how do we reopen what are the concerns of my customers how much hardship are they experiencing and what I'm sure everyone has noticed is from day one, once it became clear that this was a global pandemic, data started to come back about what was happening for people, what their hopes were, what their fears were, what the impact was on them, et cetera. But that data by and large was being gathered on the internet and speaking to and listening to the three and a half billion people who have easy access to that mode of communication. And so what we have found is so the other three and a half billion people in the world Everybody who's in a position to try to respond to the incredible hardship that people are under, you know, migrant workers who are forced to leave cities in India because, you know, there's no more work for them, you know, families all over the world who are skipping meals. Everybody who is trying to respond, whether you're a microfinance organization or a solar company or, you know, uh, you're you're buying from agricultural uh, suppliers, is they're flying completely blind. Nobody knows exactly what is happening to those three and a half billion people because there's no conversation happening. Kind of sort of reiterating what you know I said before is interestingly during this crisis, I think as a sector we've gotten kind of comfortable with the notion that we would think about our social impact in lots of different ways and maybe talking to customers as part of that, but there are lots of other ways to do it. What I think this crisis has made really stark is the fact that with no information about how this crisis is affecting people, we literally have no way in which to respond. And so we have seen an upsurge of energy and enthusiasm of people just saying, it's so stark. Like, I literally don't know what's happening to my customers. And whether people are coming to us directly as 60 decibels and saying, can you help us do that? Or for example, we've seen a lot in the microfinance sector that has a large infrastructure just from day one, them reaching out, calling their customers, seeing how they're doing, asking what they could do to help. That data coming in is the data that we need to be pouring over to understand what hardships people are facing and really what we can do to respond. It's, it's about getting the data we need to respond based on what the people we're trying to serve actually are experiencing, rather than kind of assuming that the data sources we have from other people or just assuming that our own experience is relevant to how we respond. And so we've really been trying to respond to that in lots of different, lots of different ways. We're just starting up work with, I mentioned some of the sectors in which we're starting up a lot of work. In the off-grid energy sector, we have a big piece of work, one with GAGLA, which is the Global Off-Grid Lighting Association, which has started up a partnership with us to gather data from their members in, from the customers of their members in six countries. We're doing a similar piece of work in the, with the Rockefeller Foundation in their power initiative. So our expectation is within the next few weeks, we will have a really clear understanding of what's going on for off-grid energy customers. We're doing a similar piece of work in partnership with the Social Performance Task Force, uh, working with financial service providers, microfinance organizations, a similar set of questions to understand what are the impacts of COVID, how concerned are you, what hardships are you experiencing, and how can you know financial services provider help respond? 
And so, you know, across the board, we're really seeing industries respond. And, and in fact, a lot of these coordinating bodies like the SPTF or like Gogla are doing a nice job of recognizing that what we need is a coordinated response so we can collect data broadly, but then look at it comparatively and really understand what are the different impacts that people are experiencing in different geographies and different regions and different sectors. Oh, sounds a massive undertaking. And I appreciate it's very early days, both in terms of the COVID crisis, but also how we move forward from it, I guess, given your vantage point and the work that you're doing. I mean, are there any key insights or trends that are beginning to emerge from this global pandemic? Yes, it's definitely early days. I mean, what we did, you know, we we expected that uh, we would want data from day one. So starting in late March, when this all really became clear how broad the spread would be, um, we started thinking about what questions we would want to integrate into our ongoing work. And starting April 1st, we started to deploy those questions. And so we've started to get some data back. You know, it's very, very early days. Things that we have seen come back are, you know, one question, you know, very baseline, basic question, we just asked about the level of concern about coronavirus. And three quarters of the people have who we've spoken to, and this is, again, primarily in the developing world, East and West Africa and Latin America in particular. You know, three quarters of the people describe themselves as very, you know, the highest level of concern, very much concerned, which, you know, it's hard to know if that's a high number or a low number. The main thing that I found uh, actually surprising was in terms of, you know, checking our own kind of assumptions at the door is I would have expected that the primary concern people would have had would have been as a result of the lockdowns, namely the economic impacts of the economy shutting down. And when we've asked customers what their primary concern is, I'm sorry, you know, customers, beneficiaries, the populations that we've been talking to, 92% of the people we've spoken to so far spoke specifically about their health or their family's health. And only 3% specifically mentioned the ability to work or earn an income. Now, this is early days and it's a small sample set. And I, this is going to be something really important to track over time to see if the balance between health impacts and kind of economic earning uh, impacts, you know, access to income, food, uh, et cetera, what that balance is going to be. But I guess I would have expected with the geographies where we're speaking to folks, it's generally younger populations. These are populations that have been exposed to obviously lots of different, you know, hardships and diseases. I would have expected a more balanced set of responses, but people are concerned about their health and well-being first and foremost. And, you know, maybe once you look at the data, that makes sense. This is after all a disease and people you know, none of us fully understands how it's going to affect us. So that's something we'll be keeping an eye on over time. And given the data that you're already starting to see and the space that you've been working in for some time, do you have any predictions for the next six to 12 months? You know, honestly, from the data we're getting back, it's too early to, to say, honestly. I, so I, I think the short answer is no. I, I guess what I would say in talking to, you know, looking at some of the data that I've come back as well as talking to uh, peers who have seen other major shocks and crises hit. And in particular, I'm thinking about the conversations we've had with colleagues in the microfinance space. I think there's a sense that the reverberations will be deep, that you've got lots of families who perhaps saw some improvements in their lives, but those improvements are tenuous and a real concern about how long it will take for economies to recover and for people to recover. So beyond that, I mean, I have three kids and I keep on reminding them when they're asking us, what do we think and what's coming next, that this is really unprecedented. I, I don't think I have any additional vantage point other than you know, being hopeful about people's resilience and being hopeful about the, the countries where we've seen really positive responses and you know, slightly being hopeful that 
in particular, a lot of the developing world tends to have younger populations that perhaps the impacts will be less bad than we fear. But you know, I do think it's early days. I think people are scared, and um, I think it will be a few full months before we really know how long it will take for life to return to whatever our new version of normal is going to be. I mean, switching to talk a little bit more about you and 60 decibels, your career spans Booz Allen, IBM, GE, Money and Acumen. I mean, what drove you to set up 60 decibels? It's an interesting question. I, I certainly didn't expect to be a first-time entrepreneur in my, in my mid-40s, but maybe I've learned something along the way. You know, when I, when I started my, I mean, it's interesting. So even though all of those different professional experiences kind of sound like different, you know, parts of the world, Booz Allen is a consultancy, IBM and G money, obviously really big business, uh, you know, uh, fortune 50 companies and Acumen's a nonprofit and 60 decibels is obviously a new social enterprise. I feel like when I, especially when I started my career, this idea of the intersection between social and business was quite new. I mean, there are very few organizations that were looking at it and kind of taking it seriously. It turns out that my very first work experience, I worked a lot on privatizations of public sector companies when I was at Booz Allen, in particular in Brazil. And I got to have a front row seat to the national privatization of what had been a publicly owned uh, phone system over the course of about a year, year and a half. And, and you know, as a young, very idealistic person, I got to see what happens when something that was state-owned becomes market-based. And it turned out that a lot of really positive things happened in terms of supply, in terms of availability, in terms of the black market going away, in terms of just everybody was better off when all of a sudden the telecom system in Brazil was privatized. And particularly because it was wireless, there was just amazing kind of democratization of access that happened. And so I got really enthusiastic about markets and then worked at really big companies and was trying to do kind of the corporate responsibility side of things. And then obviously Acumen is a nonprofit that's very focused on the intersectionality between you know, serving very low-income customers with a business-based approach. So to me, I've kind of been straddling this, those two worlds and trying to figure out how to make them come together and how to bring the best of both of those worlds together. You know, 60 decibels really grows out of that experience most deeply at Acumen and in the sector of impact investing and social enterprise, and particularly, you know, recognizing the incredible energy, good intention, amount of capital that has gone into trying to figure out ways to, again, you know, kind of going back to you know, where, where I began, harness the power of business to do good in the world, which I deeply believe in. But I think what I've come to learn is we don't do that by playing by the same rules we have always played by. And it doesn't require the same skills to be a good kind of intersectional leader as it requires to be either a good business leader or a good leader of a, of a kind of fully traditional not-for-profit. And so in addition to additional skills that it requires of us, it requires different metrics and different data. And if you want, I, I would warn you, I could probably talk about this gap that I think exists for another 30 minutes if we have the time. But it's just felt to me fundamentally, you know, we've built all the metrics to understand what it takes to have a business succeed. We can look at a cash flow statement, a balance sheet, an income statement, and really understand a lot about a business. And decades and decades and decades into doing this work, not just in the social enterprise and impact investing sector, but more broadly, we are at the ground floor in terms of having really clear, robust, useful, actionable metrics that help us understand if we are actually making people's lives better. And after seeing that problem 
as a front row seat at Acumen for a long time, you know, we had started to build what then became our lean data approach, which is what we have taken forward in 60 decibels to solve a problem for Acumen. And put really simply is we were you know, investing tens of millions of dollars into amazing companies all over the world. And we're really dissatisfied with our ability to understand if social impact was being created. And so we built our, you know, our, our lean data solution uh, specifically to solve that problem. And really, you know, to summarize it is there, there wasn't a what problem. And what I mean by that is there's not a problem. No one is mystified by what you need to measure. What people are missing is a how solution, a solution that makes it really easy to gather the data you need as a social entrepreneur to understand whether or not you're achieving what you want to achieve from a social perspective. And so, you know, we saw enough gap in the marketplace in what we were building in Acumen that people started to come to us and ask us whether or not we could take this lean data solution we had built for Acumen and deploy it for them. You know, folks like the Omidyar network, folks like Diffit and CDC and others. And over time, the question we started to ask ourselves internally was, if there is this level of gap in the marketplace, what is the best way to meet that need? And we, we decided collectively between Acumen and, and what became the founding team of 60 Decibels was that to really meet this market need, the best way to do it would be with an independent company that could really focus on scaling up the solution. And you know, we rolled up our sleeves and, and started last year and we've been off to the races. It's been fun. And in that last year, I mean, what have you learned as a social entrepreneur? And what advice would you give to someone who's potentially listening to this podcast? Be wary of advice. So <laughs> what have I learned as a social entrepreneur? I mean, I think that it's... You know, we've definitely had, you know, we, we're, we're a funny case. And as I mentioned, you know, we, we sort of got a running start because, you know, we didn't have, you know, two years just figuring it all out kind of in a corner all alone. We had the real advantage of kind of having a live testbed, both within Acumen with all the knowledge and experience and relationships we had, but also the ability to kind of test customer demand, get product market fit and all those sorts of things. So I do think that that, that certainly helped. But I think that the daily balancing of running a business that it doesn't go out of business, you know, getting, keeping the lights on, meeting customer needs and just delivering, you know, really excellence, you know, whatever that means in your space, in your sector, the, the, to the extent to which we've had some success, um, it is, you know, in part due to, I think the good work we're doing and the solution we provide, but more due to the customers that we've worked for who tell the next person that what we're doing is really valuable to them. You know, so building, you know, there, there, there's nothing that substitutes for building real loyalty in your customers. Um, you know, interestingly, one of the metrics that we love the most in every piece of work that we do is the net promoter score. And, you know, and fundamentally, you know, that's what we're trying to build is promoters in the customers that we have. But just as much as there's all of that, you know, normal challenge of running the business, then there's, you know, you're a social entrepreneur and trying to find a way to keep an eye on what it will really mean to achieve your mission and really understanding how it is that your product and your solution is causing the change you want to see in the world. So I think it requires a level of being able to telescope in and out beyond you know, seeing whether or not your cash flows are positive, whether or not you can continue to keep the lights on, whether or not you're growing in the way you want to grow, to keep track of that mission and keep connected to the why of what you're doing. I think the good news though, and kind of the secret weapon we have as social entrepreneurs is everybody is much more motivated 
by a sense of purpose in their days. And so the extent to which we can tap into that, not just for ourselves, but for our teams, you know, people will go above and beyond. And we're incredibly fortunate with our team at 60 decibels, the work that people do, the energy that people show up with and the commitment they have. And that's because people believe that what they see every day that what we're doing is helping, you know, we, we are an enabler of other people who are solving really important problems. And every single time what we do goes into the hands of people who are making really powerful social change and allows them to do their jobs better, it's incredibly easier, easy to get out of bed the next day and feel excited and motivated and really charged up. So I guess, you know, lesson that I'm still learning and still working to implement is making sure you continue to tap into that mission and tap into that why, not just for yourself and for your, you know, your leadership team, but really making it a daily reality for every single person who works on your team, because that's really why they show up. And there's a whole generation of people who are committed to that meaning and expecting that meaning in their lives. And to the extent to which we can tap into it, we're going to get their best energy, their best ideas, and you know, going to build something obviously much greater than any of us could build alone. Oh, well, I'm inspired and definitely part of the mission. I'm on, on track. Thanks so much for your time today and for sharing your insights. My pleasure. Thanks for the great questions. I really enjoyed talking to you. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.